0: Psalm 149 says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Okay, and then we have as our sermon text today, it's Exodus 3, 16 through 22. It's entitled, Expected Resistance assured deliverance, okay? So three sixteen through 22, uh, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the land of Egypt, the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Early on the morning of 6 June 1944, as the troops prepared to cross the English Channel for the D-Day invasion, there were probably two thoughts on the minds of the people, okay? The first was, this is not going to be easy. And the second was, we will be victorious. The Allied invasion force was comprised of 3 million men, 13,000 aircraft, 1,200 warships, 2,700 merchant ships, and 2,500 landing craft. Nobody in their right mind would commit such a sizable force to certain suicide, nor would they commit such a force without a reasonable expectation of victory. The crushing weight of an overwhelming force of men and material began to arrive in Normandy at 15 minutes after midnight when paratroopers jumped in behind enemy lines. Then, just before the dawn, Allied ships began to bomb the French coast. At daybreak, 135,000 Allied troops came forward like a tidal surge, on the Normandy Shores. They filled five landing sites. Can anybody name those five landing sites? Utah, Omaha, Gold, Sword, and Juno. Five landing sites. All right, during the next five days, the forces moved forward in all sectors despite very fierce resistance. Finally, on the 11th of June, the five landing groups met and Operation Overlord proceeded as planned. Our text verse today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. Moses has already been told that the Israelites will be delivered. The promise that we heard there will be reiterated today, but he is also told that there will be expected resistance before the job is complete. Pharaoh will be determined to stand against the God that he either does not believe in or who he believes he can defeat. But Moses is told that not only will the Lord prevail, the Hebrews will actually plunder the Egyptians on the way out of town. The greatest military power on the planet will be defeated by the wonders of the Lord and what he will display in the presence of the people of Israel. The same God. The eternal and ever watchful God who monitors the affairs of men is in the business of deliverance. But even more, he tells us in advance what will happen, when it will happen, and what the outcome of it will be. Now, if he did this for Israel, and he did it for us when he gave us his son, Jesus, then he will continue to be faithful right to the end. We have an absolute assurance of the good things to come because of the fulfilled promises of the Lord that he has given us in the past. So let's trust this. And even cling to it during those times when the enemy seems so very strong and capable. He isn't. God is on our side. It's a certain truth to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again today. And may God speak to us through his word. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is visiting, I have visited you. This is verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 begins with, go and gather the elders of Israel together. Moses had asked the name of God who spoke from the bush, and he received his awesome answer. His name is Jehovah. It is this name that he has been told to speak to the children of Israel as a memorial for all generations. Now Moses is given his first true set of instructions. What was said before was merely in response to his question. In verses 9 and 10, he was given his call and the intent of that call when the Lord said these words to him. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. However, this verse is his first true instruction based on the preceding conversation. And if you think on them, you will see that his words immediately place Moses as the leader of Israel. Not only is he commissioned for a specific task, but he is to be considered as their leader in that task. And this is because he is asked to go and gather the elders of Israel together. The elders here is not speaking of the oldest people. That's not what the Hebrew implies, but rather the leaders of the individual tribes. There certainly was, and there has obviously continued to be a set hierarchy within the tribes. Moses is asked to gather those people in that hierarchy together. Based on the instructions which will follow, it is granted to Moses to be the leader of those elders. Now, Jacob was the first true leader of Israel. He was the father of the 12 tribes, and that leadership implicitly fell to Joseph because of his rule over Egypt. But there is no record of a continued leader. Rather, the term the elders shows an informal coalition of the heads of the tribes. And that will now change and an order and a structure will come about which will continue with Joshua after Moses and then into the time of the judges of Israel. Verse 16 goes on, and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me. The same name and title that he was just told in the preceding verse is repeated in this one. But rather than the way that this is translated, some other translations make much more sense. Instead of the Lord God of your fathers, it should be the Lord, comma, God of your fathers, or more specifically, Jehovah, God of your fathers. The word God, instead of being tied to Jehovah, should be tied to the fathers. The reason for this is that back in verse 14, he identified himself as Jehovah. Therefore, it is a proper noun. It is his name. The words translated as I am and Jehovah are equivalent. Therefore, the name itself is sufficient to fill all of the necessary requirements that Moses had looked for. It was Jehovah who fulfilled past needs, and it is Jehovah who will continue to meet future ones as well. This is important because with the coming of Christ, we don't say Jesus, God of our salvation. Instead, we say Jesus, God of our salvation. Jesus is the name. God of salvation is what he does. The name Jehovah here identifies who God is. And God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob specifies the existing relationship. What might seem trivial or even hair splitting is actually a very important distinction to remember when you're reading the Bible. Verse 16 goes on saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. In Genesis 50, These final words of the life of Joseph were recorded and which closed out the book. Here's what he said. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It has been approximately 144 years since those words were spoken by Joseph which means that it is now about the year 2,514 from the creation of the world. To get a mental picture for us to grab onto, 144 years ago would have been 1870. In that year, among other things, construction began on the Brooklyn Bridge. The first motion picture was seen by an audience. The last states of the Union, which had seceded during the Civil War, were readmitted to the Union, and the Florida Territorial Government was formed. What seems amazingly distant to us is just a breath to God, mm-hmm. and so in exact fulfillment of those words which Joseph spoke, Jehovah repeats them now in the ears of Moses. Joseph said, "Visiting will visit you." True to that promise, his words to Moses are, "Pakod, pakati etchem." Visiting, I have visited you. The many years of trial and hardship were not overlooked or ignored. Instead, they were awaiting their fulfillment. Yehovah promises and Yehovah fulfills. Nothing spoken in promise will ever be ignored nor delayed. What a relief that we serve such a faithful and such an attentive God. Joseph's words had probably become a known and a repeated phrase by the Israelites. So hearing them spoken by Moses to them would bring the extra assurance of a, ref- of a fulfilled prophecy. Thus, they would be words that they could rely on and that they could trust in. And we have an identical New Testament promise that we frequently cite as we await its fulfillment as well. The words of Jesus ring often in our ears and in our hearts, especially when times get a little bit tough. But because they were spoken by the same great God, we have the absolute surety that they will be fulfilled. Here's what he said. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Doesn't hearing those words inspire you to persevere even through the darkest of times? And knowing that so much prophecy has been fulfilled, we can be even more confident in the absolute surety of what lies ahead. I just can't wait for that day when he calls us home to that mansion he's building. Think of it, six days of creation everything that we see he did in six days and he's been working on our home for two thousand years imagine what it's going to be like verse 17 and i have said i will bring you up out of the affliction of egypt verse 17 repeats the words of the eighth verse of this chapter thus they confirmed the words but they also confirmed the words spoken by joseph and they also confirmed two other specific promises as well the first was to Jacob when he was just about to leave Canaan for the very last time. There in Genesis 46, it said this. So he said, I am the God; I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And a full 215 years before that, a similar promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 15, He said this, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete there's been a continuous succession of words spoken by God to the covenant line to show them why he was doing certain things, how long those things would last, and to reassure them that even if individuals would die along the way, and even if afflictions were sure to come, God was still there to tend to each subsequent generation until the times reached their fullness. Verse 17 continues, to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites with the exception of just one word. This portion of the verse is an exact quote from Exodus 3, verse 8. Instead of the land, there in Exodus 3, 8, it said the place. And there's a reasonable explanation for this change. If you heard the previous sermon, you know that there's this chiasm, which spans the entire section, which goes from verse 8 to verse 17. In this chiasm, the order of verses 8 and 17 are reversed, complete the chiasm in in verse eight it said a land flowing with milk and honey and then it identified that it was the place of these people groups in this verse it identifies the people groups and then that it is a land flowing with milk and honey the chiasm explains the change it also shows intentional purpose order logic and harmony it also allows us to probe into the mind of god to see what is important to him as he unfolds his words What an absolute treasure this word is. I mean that, what a gift and what a joy when you know what's going on and why it's going on. It is to the land of these six people groups that God will lead the Israelites after their time in Egypt is finally realized. And it is to a wondrous land, as the description of his words to Moses continues, to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is now the second of 20 times that this expression, a land flowing with milk and honey, is going to be used in the Bible. It is to this glorious land, which is still beloved by peoples of the world today, which is fought over and which is prophesied over that the Israelites will be taken. The expression involves both physical and spiritual connotations. The physical implication is that it will be abundant in livestock and in grain. The spiritual implication is that it will be abundant in the word of God and in the instruction of that word. It will be the land of the people of God and the land of the word of God. Praise the Lord from whom comes all good things. He provides his people with food and also with his word. It is to him that my soul joyously sings, for he is the great, gracious, and glorious Lord. Praise the Lord for the food that we eat. Praise him for stomachs filled with delight. The table is filled as we come, take our seat. We are strong in the day and sleep contentedly at night. Praise the Lord for his wondrous word. Praise him for the history and the stories it tells. And when we read it, we can peer into the mind of the Lord, and for him and his glory, the heart surely swells. Our second thought expected resistance, assured deliverance. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, then they will heed your voice. Verse 18 is chock full of information. The chiasm which spanned the previous verses is ended, and so there's no repetition in this verse. Instead, it takes on a new direction in the narrative. First, the Lord notes that the elders of Israel will, in fact, heed Moses' voice. Although Moses may be weary of taking on this responsibility and he'll need some signs to confirm his commission, the implication here is that the name Yehovah, along with the words that he has visited his people, should be sufficient to convince them of Moses' words and thus to heed what he says. Verse 18 goes on, And you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. This is either a prophecy or a command. Nobody's really sure. If it's a prophecy, it means that Moses will surely come with the elders to the king of Egypt. However, if it is a command, it means that Moses must surely come before the king of Egypt with the elders of Israel. There's no indication in chapter 5 that the elders did come before the king with Moses. But that could mean that they either accepted Moses' authority and granted him authority to represent them or that they did go with Moses and are simply not noted in the Bible as being present. Either way, there is nothing lacking if it was a prophecy, and there was no disobedience if it is a command. Verse 18 goes on, And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. The understanding that one gets from the Bible is that different lands and different people groups and different governments often believed that they were guided by a particular God. You see it all the way through the Old Testament. Some had many gods, but even these normally fell under the authority of a particular god for that people, for that land, or for that government. As the Hebrews were a distinct group of people, there'd be nothing unusual with them claiming obedience to Jehovah, who is a particular named god. The king of Egypt would have had a main god of his own, whose will he would seek and whom he believed he would receive guidance from. This is seen all the way throughout the Bible, and it's even noted that the true God would speak to those outside of the Hebrew people in various ways. Among others, he spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, he spoke to Balaam the prophet who was from Mesopotamia in dreams, in visions, and even spoke to him through the mouth of a donkey. He spoke to Cyrus, king of Persia, through his own written word from the hand of Isaiah, and he spoke to the king of Nineveh through the very reluctant prophet Jonah. The Bible even implies that God spoke to a later Pharaoh about a matter which involved another king of Israel, Josiah. Okay, here's what it says from uh, 2 Chronicles. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house of with which I have war, for God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. And in fact, Josiah didn't heed the word and he ended by dying from the wound suffered in that battle. Because of the beliefs of the people, there is no need to assume that Pharaoh didn't believe them, not at all. The only real question is, would he accept the word of Jehovah, or would he fight against it, figuring that his gods were stronger? In this verse, it's now the eighth of 14 times that the term Hebrew will be used in the book of Exodus, which is more than any other book in the entire Bible. In fact, the term is used only 34 times in the entire Old Testament. And so this peculiar designation is used specifically to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the people of God. Their plight is shown to be parallel to the people of God in the end times, where a similar distinction is going to be seen and where a similar display of God's power on behalf of his people will be realized. Everything we're seeing now will be seen again in the end times. Verse 18 continues, and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, why is this request specifically given? Some scholars are gonna suggest that it was because Sinai would have been a three-day journey on the most direct route. If you go back to verse 12, God told Moses that the sign to him of the truth of his word was that they would worship him on that same mountain. And so they say that this is what that three-day journey signifies. I don't agree with that. In the same verse, we're told, this verse that we're looking at now, we're told that the king of Egypt is going to deny the request and that he would have to see the hand of God before he would let them go. Therefore, the sign wasn't that they would go to Sinai and worship at the first request from Pharaoh. Rather, the sign was that they would worship at Sinai after being freed. Instead, this three-day journey probably had a twofold reason. The first was to be away from the open idolatry of Egypt, of which even the Israelites had participated in. In the wilderness, there would be purity of worship because they wouldn't have all these false idols around them. The second reason is actually seen explicitly stated in Exodus chapter 8. It says, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land, meaning the land of Egypt, not the wilderness. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commanded us. These are the reasons for the requested three-day separation. The fact that God knew that Pharaoh would deny the request doesn't then indicate any deceit in either God or Moses because the plan was actually to leave Egypt. That's what the plan is. Rather, it was an offering that involved Pharaoh's free will. Just because God knows our choices, it doesn't mean that we don't have the free will in making those choices, nor does it mean that we will not suffer the consequences of them. Instead, what we choose stands as a testimony for our rewards and our punishments by him. Pharaoh could have actually granted this request without any loss to his kingdom or any damage which is eventually gonna result. But instead, he chose to harden his heart and put up a wall between himself In God through disobedience to Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. Verse 19, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. I am sure, which is found here in the New King James Version and in the King James Version, lacks the force of the statement. God isn't just sure as if he has a feeling in his bones, rather, he knows with absolute certainty of what's going to happen. The words in Hebrew are ve'ani yadati, which means literally. And I know. But despite this, was it wrong? This is a question for you. Was it wrong to make the request, seeing as how he knew that the request would be denied? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at it logically, and we're going to ask some comparable questions. Is it wrong that Jesus died for Jane or John or Tom, even though God knew that they would turn down that great and noble sacrifice? Was God wrong in doing that? No okay is it wrong that god says in his word that he does not permit people to commit adultery even though that he knew that the world would be full of adulterers is god wrong by doing that no what about where his word says that women aren't to be ordained as pastors or elders or bishops because that would put them in authority over a man even though he knew that they would arrogantly defy his word is that wrong the answer is no none of these things that are requested, that are offered, or that are commanded by God are wrong. Why? Because he establishes the parameters, and we are expected to respond according to those parameters. Full judgment will be executed on those who fail to do so. And every mouth will be stopped before it speaks in his presence. He is God. We are man. He is the creator. We are the created. And guess what? He is the potter, and we are the clay. He knows what we're going to do. It doesn't mean that it's wrong that we do it or that he even gave the commandment. Don't let people try to pull that one over on you, because you see that kind of stuff on Facebook all the time. You hear it in churches all over the world. That's not correct. He is God. We must obey what he says. Verse 19 continues. No, not even by a mighty hand. The words in Hebrew are velo beyad hazakah and no, by hand, mighty. One probably wouldn't think that such simple words would be confusing, but they can be. The record stands that eventually, by a mighty hand, Pharaoh did let them go. And so, and no is probably better rendered as Beck's Bible of 1549 translates it. Here's how he said it. I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go except with a mighty hand. Other translations agree with this as well. However, even after letting the people go, what did he do? He changed his mind and he chased after Israel and he was destroyed in the waters of the Red Sea. And so it could literally be intended that no, not even by a mighty hand is the final truth of the matter. Thus, the waters covered over the very, very obstinate and very hard-hearted man. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst." midst, excuse me, The word translated as, so I will stretch out, is Veselachti, which carries a double signification here. In one sense, it is given as a sign of helping and saving assurance towards Israel. At the same time, it carries the sense of fighting against Egypt. In Exodus 23, the same word is used as a promise of leading the Israelites while attacking the inhabitants of Canaan by sending out the hornet in front of them. In Exodus 33, the word is used again in the same way when he says, I'm going to send the angel out before you. The angel fights against the enemies and he fights for Israel. All three times in Exodus, the Lord sends out protection while sending out destruction. In the case of Egypt, it would be, as he says, with all of my wonders. When we think of that which is terrifying on one side and yet wonderful to the other, we can get a glimpse of what lies ahead A volcano is certainly terrifying to those who are close enough to be engulfed by it. And yet, from a safe distance, it's a wonder to behold, isn't it? It's just amazing to see a volcano, even in a picture of it. The same is true with any disaster or miraculous event. Some of us here have survived through hurricanes, and it was terrifying. And yet, you look at it on the the news, and it's a marvel to behold. What God does against his enemies can only be viewed as terrible. But the same action will inevitably be viewed as marvelous in the eyes of those that he is working for. Verse 20 continues, and after that, he will let you go. As a confirmation of what God intends will come about, Moses is given this absolute assurance. When the wonders have finally been stretched out upon Pharaoh by the hand of God, he will finally relent and release the Hebrew people. The word is spoken and it will come about. The hand of the Lord is mighty to save, and the people of the Lord are in his hand. Thus, in confidence of a blessed assurance, let us behave, for his promised end will come, and it will be grand. The enemies of God will be scattered in defeat, and yet his people will be rescued, each and every one. And at his great heavenly table, the redeemed shall eat, for the people of the Lord it shall be done. Death is swallowed up in victory, it is true, because Jesus has defeated the grave. He has done this for his people, for me and for you. Truly the hand of the Lord is mighty to save. Our third thought today is assured deliverance and a blessing, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. There are certainly several ways in which this could come about. The first is that the Egyptians, after suffering from the hand of the Lord, would be favorable towards the Hebrews, lest they suffer even more. It would be like a slave who would gladly bless his master if the beatings would just cease. The second is that those Egyptians, if any, who were told of the events of the Passover and how to avoid the certain death of their firstborn, they'd be abundantly grateful at the sparing of their own children. Thus, it is more than probable because at the Exodus, it says that a mixed multitude went out with the Israelites from Egypt. Assuming these were some of those who were told about how to avoid the deaths of the Passover, then we could assume that there were others who were equally grateful but would just choose to remain in their homes in Egypt. A third reason, though not specifically mentioned here, but which is realized later, was the need that it was requested to make the implements of the tabernacle. The ark, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, all of that gold, all of that silver, all of the other furniture— All of the tabernacle itself was needed to be built, and so they're asking for it in order to do that. If their God had asked for these things, and it was this God who had stretched out his hand for both protection and for destruction, then who wouldn't be favorably disposed to giving what was needed to erect the implements necessary for his worship? And a fourth reason could simply be human pity. The people were beaten to dust for as long as anyone could remember, and they had been plundered of their livelihoods and their lives To send them off without a blessing would only be adding insult to injury, which brought the Lord's judgment on them in the first place. There's no need to assume that this verse isn't just probable, but rather it's likely. And in it, there would have been nothing deceitful and nothing duplicitous. Instead, the favor is to be perfectly understood from the context of the times. Verse 21 goes on, And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. This is something that was explicitly promised to Abraham 430 years earlier when he was told these words, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God, who knows the future, had promised Abraham, and now the promise is reiterated to Moses. Verse 22, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house. One of the most unfortunate translations in the history of the universe is that of the King James Version, and it's for this verse right here. They, what they did is they, they, they pretty much copied the Geneva Bible in most of their translation. So they, blindly following along with the Geneva Bible, used the word borrow instead of ask, okay? What does borrowing imply? You're going to give it back. Borrowing implies returning. And it is perfectly understood from the situation that returning was not a consideration. And if it were, there would have been no need for the Lord to give the Hebrews favor in their sight. We will lend to people that we don't like as long as we know that they're gonna return the thing to us. The plundering of the Egyptians because of that particular word has brought a lot of criticism on the Bible over the years. People have used terms like fraud, theft, and deception and other words like that to describe what occurred here. Surely comparisons to this and to modern Jews have been made implying that that this is a trait which permeates their entire society. But what can one expect when a word in a context, which surely means to ask, is mistranslated as borrow? Rather, every woman was instructed to ask of her neighbor for the articles they would need, and to which they had a 215-year right. But... In these same words, I'm always fair about these things, the New King James Version also departs from what's correct. That's what I use for my sermons It's the New King James Version. They say, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely, of her who dwells near her house. Nobody. Of every translation I check for sermons, nobody translates it this way. It's incorrect. Instead, it should read something like, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house. Two categories are intended, not one who is being mentioned twice. Verse 22 continues Articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. The word articles here can mean a whole host of things, from weapons to utensils, from cups to plates, whatever. Articles of silver and gold are specifically requested, not to enrich the Israelites, but for what the Israelites will do with them in the wilderness. They're being prepared now for an organized mode of worship, which will continue on until the coming of Jesus Christ. And all of what they construct will picture him, every detail of it. God is plundering the Egyptians in order to form worship for his people. Now think of it. In Christ, God took from humanity in order to build his greater and eternal temple. He did it in that Christ came from the stream of humanity to be the true ark of that temple. And he has done it from his people who have become living stones in his temple. There's nothing untoward and nothing inappropriate in this verse. Instead, there is purpose. There's design as God prepares that which is holy from sources which are not so. But all things are from God, and so all things can be purified by God. And that includes even a miserable wreck like Charlie Garrett. And in its ultimate sense, this request is actually a picture of Christ coming from the unholy stream of humanity and yet perfectly pure in his being, purer than the finest gold which has gone through the refiner's fire. Verse 22 goes on, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. I will tell you this as clearly as I can. It troubles me when I come to words like this and there's no immediate reason for why they're included. I mean, i go to bed at night and I can't sleep if I come across something like this, and I don't know why did God put those words in there. The verse has been very specific, asking for articles, and then it says they are to put them on their sons and daughters. Why was this even included? Comments on these words are very short and coming. I found zero, but I have a few suggestions after my sleepless nights. Assuming that it's jewelry— One could guess that they wanted the youngest of the Hebrews adorned with the wealth of Egypt as a sign of opulence. If the children were so adorned, then one would consider the wealth of the parents even greater. A second reason would be to show that the youngest and weakest of the Hebrews was adorned with what the strongest of the enemy dare not attempt to steal. Who would adorn a mere child in this way unless there was the surety that the child was well protected? Thirdly, It is to show that as Israel came to Egypt from Canaan during a time of great deprivation, Israel would be returning to Canaan from Egypt with great wealth, even wealth that overflowed to the youngest who could walk out of the land. And lastly, this again pictures Jesus Christ, who came from those sons and daughters. That which was of the greatest value of all came through them as they bore his lineage in their redeemed bodies. Verse 22 finishes with these words, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. For 215 years, Israel dwelt in Egypt. They came and then during their stay, Egypt blossomed. It flourished under the authority of Joseph. Israel also grew mighty and prosperous, but eventually they were robbed into poverty and they were crushed into submission. What what was there? What was there to show for Joseph's leadership and his wisdom, which literally saved the kingdom of Egypt? nothing the plundering of the egyptians was in fact a just reward for israel's time and labor the same word is used in 1 samuel chapter 30 in the 22nd verse to indicate stolen property that was recovered by its rightful owner this plundering of egypt is then a just and proper transfer to israel when it actually occurs at the exodus it will be as a picture of the final plundering of the nations of the world after the tribulation period it is exactingly prophesied at the end of the book of Zechariah, where he says this, Judah will also fight at Jerusalem. This is the end times battles and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. In this, there is the truth which often escapes us because of the times that we're afflicted and the many times that we are on the losing end of the stick. But we can be certain that the Lord's people will always find gain in the end when striving against the powers of the world. The plundering of the Egyptians is nothing short than people receiving their just due. As the pulpit commentary says about this, Egypt, glad at their departing, was to build them a bridge of gold to expedite their flight and to despoil herself in order to enrich her quantum slaves of whom she was, under the circumstances, delighted to be rid. But there is one more picture to consider before we close. The plundering of the Egyptians pictures Christ's plundering of the devil. He gained control over humanity, and to him, all human beings belonged. However, Christ came to correct that. Not only did he defeat the devil, just as Jehovah defeated Pharaoh, but he also plundered the devil of his most precious possessions, the souls of mankind. Thus, the victory of Christ is prefigured in these words to Moses there at the bush on Mount Sinai. If you found yourself in a situation which you think is unending and which is hopeless, don't forget that the end of the book is written. It's all done. The word is there and it says, Amen. And so we have the surety that God's word is truth and that it will all come to pass exactly as it's recorded in it. God has built us our own bridge finer than the purest gold, in order to expedite our own flight from this world of chaos and disorder and to receive us on the welcome shores of a heavenly home. It is there and it is awaiting our reception. If you want the faithful assurance that heaven is your own final destination, please let me explain to you what is needed for you to take hold of that, to be assured of it. Give me just another moment to tell you about God's love for you in his son, Christ Jesus. This This is exactly what we're talking about throughout the Bible is being pictured in these stories right now. The devil owns this world. That's made explicitly clear in the New Testament several times. He is the owner of this world and he is the owner of all human beings. That's all there is to it. Until we call on Jesus Christ, we belong to our father who is the devil. He is our master. But when we call on Jesus Christ, we are freed from that bondage and we move from Adam, fallen man, to the redeemed Christ. And God is now our rightful master once again. And he allows us the choice of making that decision. He doesn't force it on us. We've seen this sermon through sermon through sermon, all the way through Genesis and now into Exodus, that we have to make a choice in our life. The wages of sin is death. That doesn't just mean physical death, but it means spiritual death. We have all sinned, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. And God says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, we have a choice. He doesn't force it on us. It says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can't save myself. I understand that I'm under the power of the devil. Even if I think I'm a really good guy, it doesn't matter what you think. The only thing that matters is what God's word says, what he has done in the stream of humanity. And I wanna be away from the ownership of the devil and I wanna be under the authority of God, his child redeemed because of the blood of Christ. If you've never made that commitment, do so today. Call on Jesus Christ and you will have a new father, a heavenly father once again. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 119. It's the 38th verse. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Next week is Exodus 4. It's verses one through nine. This is wonderful stuff in these uh, nine verses. If you get a chance, go ahead and read them and think on them. It's three signs to his people. I wanna see if you can figure out if these signs or any of them or all of them somehow picture the work of Christ, okay? That'll be your 10th Exodus sermon, and I'd like you to read it in Hebrew, study it, and if you figure out how it points to Christ, I'll let you do the sermon next week, okay? It's great stuff, all right? By the way, I got something to tell you. That Allied invasion force which crossed the English Channel, they won the war. Yes, there was expected resistance, and it was most costly, but in the end, Europe was delivered. There was a strong and powerful force ready to take the victory. And in your battle, you have a far, far more powerful hand stretched out for your deliverance. Don't be concerned. The outcome is assured. And I'd like to remind you what I said at the beginning of the sermon is that I will make myself available anytime that you need. If you need counseling or if you need something that's just on your heart, you want to get together and talk, or if you just need to send me an email, do so. And I'll do my very best to get you an answer as quickly as possible, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. So even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And don't forget the through you part. There's things that you can do the Lord's bidding on. Don't forget that. Every day you can do something to honor the Lord. We have a poem today which is, Expected Resistance, Assured Deliverance. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, known as well as the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob too, appeared to me, and his word so dripped. I have surely visited you and seen what was done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, thus it is true, to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites too, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place where the shekel will be your money. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt as one voice and to him this you shall tell. The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us on a path to trod three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. Thus it is so. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst of its land. And he will let you go after my mighty thunders. And I will give this people favor in the Egyptian sight. And it shall be when you go for sure that you shall not go up empty handed. All right. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, be they a lovely shawl or a nice bright blouse. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters also. So you shall plunder the Egyptians when out of Egypt you go. There may be many years of lack in your life, times of turmoil or anguish, anguish or strife. But in the end, the child of the Lord will be brought out to the abundance galore. We have this promise in his holy word that there is eternal blessing, joy forevermore. Let us trust through the years of trial and stand firmly grounded, each of us, for inside heaven's gate is an everlasting smile as we behold the beauty of our Lord Jesus. Thanking you, O God, receive our praise as we look forward to your presence for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture. And uh, how that chiasm, which was placed in there, shows us why you repeated yourself and what you want us to learn about uh, your nature and who you are. And then just following after that, you told us that uh, Israel would plunder the Egyptians and how appropriate that is that you came into the stream of humanity and you plundered that stream in order to make a temple for yourself of us, your people. And you also plundered the devil, taking those souls away from him We thank you for that, that we are the redeemed of the Lord because of what you did. There's nothing that we did that deserves this. It's simply by grace, and that just shows what a wonderful God you are, that you would bestow grace on people like us. How wonderful, how absolutely beautiful it is to stand in your presence. And I look forward to the day when all of us are there praising you, a great multitude that can never be counted or numbered, that is just praising you like the biggest concert in the face of the universe, all praising Jesus. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. Please look after each person here, guide them in the week ahead, help them to remember you as they walk through uh, difficult times or whether they receive good things, never to forget that they came from you and to praise you for them. And also to accept the tough times and to uh, uh, just trust that you will lead them through them without any real trouble because in the end, Our future is assured. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We exalt you. All of this we do in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there Paul wrote these words For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu olam min Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. He would have blessed it as well. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, Bore HaOlam, Borei Puri Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, Creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread Body and the blood, Lord Jesus Christ. 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 The body and the blood, blood Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this table and to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And may that day be soon. We love you and we praise you. We exalt you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.